You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Chad Carson from CoachCarson.com. Hi, I'm Jennifer Beatles. I am the founder of Agents Invest and Addicted to ROI.com. My name is Craig Kurlop, author of The House Hacking Strategy and employee at Bigger Pockets. Hey, this is Diego Corzo from House Hacking Club. And you're listening to the What's Up Next podcast. Up next, where your hosts, Paul David Thompson and Doc G, take the discussion on topics in the financial independence movement to the next level. Guest panelists share their opinion to questions that don't have clear answers to help you refine your path to financial independence. Welcome. This is Paul David Thompson. And this is Doc G. So, Paul Thompson. What's up next? Hey, Doc, we have a panel of real estate experts today, and we're going to be asking the question, is house hacking the key to financial independence? My name is Craig Kurlop, author of The House Hacking Strategy, a serial house hacker in Denver, Colorado, and employee of Bigger Pockets. and it's great to be here. Hi, everyone. I'm Chad Carson from CoachCarson.com and the Real Estate and Financial Independence Podcast. I'm Jennifer Beatles, and I am the founder of Agents Invest and the author of Addicted to ROI.com, based in Seattle, Washington. Hey, this is Diego Corso from House Hacking Club. I am based out of Austin, Texas. Craig, so let me set the stage here. You arrive home after a hot date. The night was perfect. Dinner was on point. The chemistry was there. You bring her back to your apartment and invite her into your living room after parting the curtain and walking around the cardboard room divider. Is this the life of a house hacker? So this is the life of a very aggressive house hacker in year one. And believe it or not, the way I look at it is if you can get a woman or a man based on whatever you are to be with you behind that curtain, then you know you've married or got into the right relationship and she or he likes you for who you are. So yes, that is exactly how the perfect night ends. Yeah. So it's nothing about real estate at all. It's actually a relationship test. You didn't realize that this episode is about house hacking is a relationship test. I love it. But seriously though, what, what exactly is house hacking? Can you give me a definition, Craig? Yeah, so house hacking is the idea that you can buy a property for typically a low amount down, typically three to 5% down. You live in part of it and you rent the other parts out such that the rent from the other parts fully covers your mortgage and you live for free and likely eliminate what is your largest expense housing. Chad, can you tell us where did this term come from? Do you remember the first time you heard it? Well, I did house hacking before I learned the term, but I believe our friend Brandon Turner over Bigger Pockets coined the phrase. He's pretty good at coming up with these uh, these nice little catchphrases, and it's it's caught on. It's caught fire. We've all used it. We've all spread the word, and it's a concept now that I think's in the more in the common common nomenclature. Diego, Chad said like this was something he did before he even knew what it was. I mean, haven't people been doing house hacking forever? I mean, you're from an immigrant family. I know my parents mm-hmm. too immigrated to the US and they didn't call it house hacking, but when they moved here, they certainly moved in with another family and shared an apartment. And later on, when my father-in-law owned a building, he would take someone who was a little down on their luck and give them apartment and charge them less and then have them manage the building. I mean, isn't this an old concept? It's funny that you say this now, but as I look back, we've always been doing that, whether it's been with a family friend or yes, since we moved here in 1999, because we actually moved, the four of us, we moved into my aunt's house for like three months and she was house hacking, I guess, from, from that angle. Yeah. So house hacking was almost in your DNA. Yeah. So Jennifer, tell me about your first house hack. How old were you? 
Yeah. So the first house hack, that was 2009. So it was about 10 years ago. So I would have been 23 years old. But prior to that, it was kind of a a different form of house hacking. So my girlfriend and I, we rented an apartment in an apartment complex, but we were managers. So we got, our rent was like $400. The normal rent was $700. So that was kind of another form of house hacking is, you know, I saved up a lot of money by being on-site managers. And that way, of course, we didn't own the 16 units that we lived in, but that was also a really great way to kind of save up to do more real estate investing as well. Chad, was house hacking your first real estate venture or where in your path did you end up doing a house hack? It was not my first venture. I, similar to some of the others, I actually lived in a you know somebody else's house first. My, my business partner and I started right after I graduated from college and I moved into a spare bedroom and just like pushed the boxes over. They were in his storage room, basically. So I lived for free doing that. But, but when I first decided to buy a property and actually become an a, a owner of a home, it was the first strategy that I gravitated towards. I knew it was just a practical thing that I didn't have any money because I was trying to flip houses. It was very inconsistent. I just knew I had to get my expenses really low. It was a very practical tool to do that. So even before you jumped into house hacking, you started bird dogging, right? Because that was kind of the thing you could do with the least money in real estate. Yeah. So I was basically just scrapping by living with family first, then with my business partner and and then just going out and hustling and finding deals. And really people want to kind of think about it from a broader standpoint. I was in real estate investing from the beginning, just making money as a real estate investor, but you could apply that to any job. Like if you're a college student, if you're who's trying to make a little bit of money, if you're a new employee at a company in your 20s, 30s, whatever, it's just a, a really good strategy to think about your housing and not go all in on a huge housing expense when you have the risk of being a young person in a new career. You got to really think about that big housing expense like Craig talked about. Diego, what Chad is talking about is being a young person and being interested in real estate. Is house hacking the ideal entrance pathway into real estate if you're young or especially if you don't have much money? I believe that it is because it allows people that are working a full-time job who think that number one, as a millennial, for example, you might think that you don't have much money to get into real estate and that you may not have the time or experience. So house hacking is the easiest way to have somebody buy a home with low money down and try to see if they like real estate because they're either paying somebody else's house, whether they're living in an apartment or they rent a house, but this is the easiest way for them to build some passive income and build some wealth. And talk about that a little bit, Craig. Does house hacking lead to more real estate, more house hacking, or is it kind of a one and done? Well, the idea here is that you can achieve financial independence in a much shorter amount of time if you do house hacking for a few years, right? The whole idea is that you're going to save your rent that you were paying before, likely cash for a little bit more than that, and also build equity in the house. And so with all of those factors, you're able to save so much money in a year that you can usually pretty easily use that money saved for the next down payment and you know, continue that exponential growth. Is there a reason that it naturally is more appealing than putting your money in the stock market? Yeah, well, so if you put your money in the stock market and you put in index funds, I think the typical rate that everyone says you'll get is about 7% over the course of forever. So with house hacking, right, the whole idea is that one, it's super high leveraged, right? So you're putting a really low amount down and you're getting a really large return from four different generators. And those generators are cash flow, loan pay down, appreciation, and tax benefits. So all of those things combined, you're looking at a return. And I talk about this in the book, a net worth return on investment of well over 100% in that first year. So it's a great way to build wealth. One of the big benefits of real estate investing and house hacking in particular is being able to use leverage like Craig was just talking about and use it in a relatively safe way. Because I don't think anybody wants to go out and just take crazy risks and risk losing their money. But you do want to use leverage in some form or fashion to get to your goal a little bit faster. The thing I love about house hacking more than anything is you have to live somewhere. And if you do this for a short period of time and you use leverage, you're essentially, you're, you're taking advantage of the fact that you have a housing payment no matter what. And that's pretty safe leverage. I mean, you're getting often a 30-year mortgage, fixed interest rate, you have a housing payment anyway, and then it can turn into an investment. So you're very flexible. You can move in, you can move out. And I, I think combining your home and your investment is often overlooked by so many people. And it could be the only real estate investment you ever have if you do like what Craig's talking about. Do it serially for a few years and you can be done 
for a long time. Jennifer, let's talk about leverage a little bit. Usually when we talk about someone buying a home, they think about putting down 20%, let's say. Yet house hackers frequently talk about putting either nothing down or 3.5% down, pretty much as little down as they possibly can. Is there a risk to over leveraging? You know, I don't think that there's a risk to over leveraging, you know, especially if you're looking at the potential income from the asset, right? So I look at what is the debt payment? And then what is the income that is going to be produced by that debt payment, right? So I think that, you know, I got started in 2007. I, my first investment was 2007. And then we saw what happened, right? You know, short, a couple of years after that. So, you know, I, I think that there were some risks taken there that, you know, people were doing loans that they didn't qualify for, or that was with, you know, very low down payments. However, with house hacking, you know, again, as Chad had said, people have to live somewhere, right? So you're going to have a payment no matter what. If you're paying on your own mortgage, that's leveraged, that is especially a 30-year fixed debt at, at historically low interest rates where other units and other rooms are, you know, paying that mortgage, you know, then I think that you're mitigating a lot of risk through that rental income. And then the other thing too, another benefit is, you know, especially if you're doing a multifamily or if you're renting out, say, a mother-in-law or an ADU, you get some additional tax write-offs from that. And a lot of people don't realize, you know, you get to depreciate the other units, you get, you know, all the deductions from that that you wouldn't, you know, normally get otherwise. For sure, there's going to be a risk in anything that you do. But I would say, to Jennifer's point, that it is almost more risky not house hacking than house hacking because you're going to, by not house hacking, you're not going to accumulate a lot, lots of wealth. And then you're going to be stuck behind a cubicle for the next 30 or 40 years or whatever it is. Diego, let's talk about that risk of not house hacking. You left your job shortly after starting it to start your real estate empire. And at that point you had pretty much zero. Is that right? Exactly. I was 24 when I first started house hacking. And because I began to live for free, by the time that I turned 25, I was able to leave my job. And I feel like if you love your job, if you start house hacking, it will give you the option to continuing to work because you want to, not because you have to. And that's why I feel like for people that are getting started with house hacking, it's a great way to see what other options are out there because they don't have to be just dependent on their job. And once I did that, when I left being a software developer, I was able to triple my income by me becoming a realtor. But I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was truly dependent on on my job and being stuck in the rat race. I was going to add about an attitude that probably a lot of us share here. We're all real estate investors. And I have found the people in the financial independence movement sort of have a couple different camps. And I think all of us are trying to build wealth accumulate as much equity as you can. But real estate investors are very conscious of their income. And it really is very basic. I mentioned earlier when I first started, I knew that I had a housing expense. I don't need to cover that housing expense. And so real estate investing and achieving financial independence through that, in some ways, it's like really simple math. And house hacking is just sort of an accelerated version of taking away a personal expense and also adding in income. And for real estate investors, that's just the name of the game. You just you stack up as much income as you can and you try to make that more than what you spend. And when that happens, that, that's it. You know, and so I, I love what Diego says is that it gives you options. Like even when he was first starting and even when I first started, it gives you the option to take some chances. Like even a thousand bucks a month, 500 bucks a month gives you that platform to go leave a job, take a chance, become an entrepreneur, become a real estate investor, or just take a mini retirement or take a break. Like all of those are part of the journey to financial independence. And it kind of starts from looking at your personal expenses and trying to cover part of that or all of that with your income. I think that there's immediate benefits of house hacking and then also long-term benefits of house hacking. So the benefits of owning real estate long-term, for me, it's just better every year. So for example, the first house hack that I did when I was 23, at that point, FHA was 3% down. So it wasn't 3.5% down, but I was also a licensed real estate agent. So I was able to use the commission that I earned buying that property as my down payment. So I essentially had a zero down loan. Now I still own that property and that property pays me about $10,000 a year in cash flow. So that's before factoring in any, you know, depreciation, all the tax benefits. So again, you know, I think that there's immediate benefits and then long-term benefits as well. Diego, all of the panelists here seem to have started at a very young age when they probably had less to lose and more to gain. Is house hacking a young person's game? I mean, can you do it when you're middle age? Can you do it when you're in your 40s and 50s? I believe that you can. It's just that when, when you're younger, 
you may be okay with having three roommates and just sacrificing more. And for some people, I feel like it looks like you're sacrificing more, but at the end of the day, it's like, what are you willing to give up now so that in the five, 10 years, you may live the life that you want to live, right? Because a lot of my friends, when I was an employee at GM, they will tell me, Diego, like you're making good money. Why are you living with roommates? Why are you sacrificing all of that stuff? And I'm like, well, I have the mindset that I want to build a bigger life, not a bigger lifestyle. And that's what I chose the house hacking. There are multiple forms of house hacking, right? So sure, there's the rent by the room that Diego just mentioned. There's the traditional where you get the duplex, triplex, or quad. But for a family or someone that's maybe a little bit older, maybe you do something where you have an additional dwelling unit out back or a mother-in-law base in the basement, and you can just Airbnb that out or put it up on a long-term rental even. And maybe you don't cover your mortgage fully. If you've got a $2,000 mortgage that you're paying yourself and you rent that out for $1,000, you're still saving $1,000 a month, which is super beneficial. And you can still have the life or the house that you want and the life that you want to live. Jennifer, do you think Airbnb has made house hacking more accessible? I mean, Airbnb is such a new thing comparatively. We didn't have that 20 years ago. Absolutely. Especially, you know, I'm in Seattle, right? And so it's very expensive where I live. And I think that there's a lot of benefit to Airbnb because, you know, there's a lot of flexibility as well. I have some friends that do Airbnb in their fairly expensive houses. And, you know, and their feedback has been that, you know, they didn't want to commit to it full term with, you know, having actually tenants in leases and bedrooms. And so they can kind of test it out that way. They can test it out with Airbnb, you know, see if it's a good fit for them and their family before they commit to having, you know, a 12 month lease sign with the tenant. I love Airbnb. I think it's a great strategy that I've only dabbled with a little bit. My wife and I have a basement unit that we're renting out for game day rentals in a football town. But what I like about house hacking as an Airbnb strategy is that Airbnb can be risky in some cases. Like if you go and buy a rental property that you just use as for Airbnb, the, the legal frameworks of a lot of towns are making it difficult. Sometimes, you know, you could find yourself, there's a town near me that outlawed Airbnb for anyone who doesn't live in it. I just did this last week. You know, it doesn't mean you're completely risk-free, but when you house hack, you live there, it's much less likely they're going to take away that right for you to rent your, your, your basement unit or an extra bedroom. Owner occupants are usually the last ones to lose that. So it's, it's just a little bit less risky of an Airbnb strategy to rent your own units out of your basement out. Yeah. And if you do decide to do that Airbnb strategy, I highly, highly recommend that you make sure it works as a long-term rental as well. Because like Chad said, there's a lot of regulations that are going against Airbnb and Airbnb still is a company. What if it goes under? You know, So you always want to make sure that it works in multiple scenarios. And if you want to extract, for example, like in Denver, it's one of those cities where it's actually outlawed if you don't live there. But why not get that Airbnb income for as long as you can? And then once it becomes outlawed or whatever it is, then you can convert back, but get those higher returns in the beginning. Yeah. You ran into some trouble, didn't you, with one of your uh, house hacks when you realized that you weren't necessarily complying with the laws of the state. Is that right, Craig? Yes, that is right. I did get a phone call from the city of Denver saying that I had to shut down one of my Airbnbs because they found out that I did not live there. And so luckily, the first penalty is just a slap on the wrist kind of thing. And then you just take it down and convert it to a long-term rental. The worst thing that happens is I've got a furnished rental. So it's not horrible. So I'd like to kind of pull on the thread that we mentioned a while ago of all the different types of house hacks that are out there. We've talked about Airbnb and maybe that doesn't work because things change. We've danced around some of the other topics. Jennifer, you mentioned ADUs. What are the list of types of house hacks? Yeah. So another house hack that we've used is we've actually, you know, purchased properties, lived in them for a year as an owner occupant, and then converted it to a rental after we moved out. So of course, our housing wasn't being paid at that time. You know, the mortgage was significantly less than what we would have paid for rent. So we actually just did that about two years ago. So we moved from one house to another, lived there for a year, solely for the purpose of converting it to a rental after the fact, and then moved to another house. And so we've done that three times. So we've lived in properties solely for the purpose of meeting that owner occupancy requirement for putting the lower down payment in order to convert it to a rental later. And then we've also done two live-in flips. Now, it's a kind of a different strategy. It, I guess it's kind of a house hacking in a way, but we've done live-in flips so that we can fix the properties up, sell them later. You know, we meet the capital gains exemption so we don't have to pay capital gains because we don't flip properties anymore. We've, we had done that in the past and we just you know, pay massive amount of taxes. So that's kind of been a different form of house hacking for us. Of course, there's you know value-add multifamily. So we've done that as well. So we've purchased multifamily properties, lived in one unit, and then rented out other units. 
that's our experience. I know that there's a lot of different yeah, options. For there are a lot more, but let's cover those three real quickly, make sure everybody understands. The first one you talked about was where you lived in it for a year. And the, the significance of that is that you can qualify for these lower down payments, Fannie Mae backed type loans, 30 year fixed interest rates for, and then you have to live there for one year and then you can move on and you can do that in serial for up to your limit for your debt to income ratio or 10 or whatever you break out of that square box for the Fannie Mae rules. So everybody take that to heart. That is a excellent example. Even if you don't want to live with somebody else, you can do that and just build up a series of five, 10 rentals. And that may be all you ever buy. And the second one that you mentioned was the live-in flip. And were, were you the situation where you're living there for at least two of the last five years so you could get the capital gains exemption? Yep, absolutely. Okay, yeah, and the other thing to point out too, so my husband and I took turns, right? So we put mortgages in uh, one of our names only so that we can qualify for the maximum of 10 Fannie or Freddie loans per person, right? So as a married couple, we can get up to 20 Fannie Freddie loans, conventional loans. Um, a lot of people don't know that. And a lot of, you know, husband and wife or married couples will buy properties together. And then if they learn that later, they're going back and, you know, refinancing. But, you know, we, we did that early on is so we don't own a single property. Actually, we don't have any debt that we own together because we don't want to qualify for each other's debt on new properties. Perfect, because that counts against your your number, your allotment later on. Yeah. Okay, and then you do the what they refer to as the 121 method, where they use the 121 tax code to live there for two out of the last five years. And what's cool about that is you don't have to live there for the last two years, just two out of the last five years with current laws. So that's a really cool way to just kind of hop around. And then when you sell the property, you get all your tax advantages tax-free up to a certain limit. Yeah, I was just going to point out to get creative with house hacking. So, you know, multi-units are kind of your traditional standard one or living in a house or renting out bedrooms like Craig's talked about, but there's all sorts of other ways. And if you just think about house hacking is just generating income from your house, you can start thinking outside the box. For example, I've heard of people in urban areas who there's these, there's apps that are kind of like Airbnb for parking and they rent out parking in their parking lot. And, and people do that for game day football games. They do it for people who have to work and walk. That's one option. Another option is if you're out in the country, like I'm in South Carolina, you know, I have friends who have lived in a house, have an extra land right next to them, and they put six mobile homes and make a little mobile home park out of it. You know, trailers, mobile homes, RVs, parking, you just get creative with it and think of ways you can generate income in your house. And that expands the ideas of what you can do with house hacking. Yeah, I really like that because the underlying idea is generating income from the housing that you have. So anything on your land that is monetizable could be a form of, of house hacking. So I've got a good story of a friend actually who lived in San Francisco, which is probably one of the most expensive markets in the country. And he didn't actually buy the house, right? He did this really cool thing where he rented a house, like a six or seven bedroom house in San Francisco. He lived in one room and basically he created this like co-living party. Because in San Francisco, you have all these entrepreneurs and all these Silicon Valley people that just want to network with each other. So what he did was he put two bunk beds in each of the six rooms and charged $1,200 a bed. So he was making like $4,800 a room for six rooms. I think he was making like $18,000 in rent each month and paying $6,000. So he was making like $12,000 over the rent each month. And it was just like a super creative way to go about doing it. He would pay $3,000 each month for improvements to make it like an awesome living space for the people and almost like a co-working slash networking spot. It was a really cool way to do it. And to add in, we see this a lot in Chicago with the parking spots is you have people who buy a condo in the city and don't have a car and then they'll do long-term rentals of their parking spot that they got with the condo to someone else who's coming in from the suburbs and parking in the city for a job or someone who needs a parking spot because they live downtown and their building doesn't have one. So we see that a lot in Chicago too. So Diego, all of this sounds so strikingly positive. Is there anyone who is not made for house hacking? I mean, what are the risks? Anybody who's not made for house hacking, I would say there are so many different ways as we have described here that let's say you do have a house, but you don't want to live with roommates. What Chad was saying fits the model, right? Because at the end of the day, you do want to figure out different ways that you can monetize your land, but not just your house. So I don't have anything to add on, on that point other than what has been discussed already here. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. And Greg, one thing I've noticed is that when I read people who are interested in house hacking, for some reason, the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad almost always comes up. So what's the significance of Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Is that like a manual that eventually takes you to house hacking? Well, yes, because in Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he kind of talks about basically real assets versus fake assets. Fake assets, for example, are a house, right? A house is considered like a, or it's a liability or a fake asset. People think it's an asset, but actually it's taking money out of your bank account each month. But when you start to think, okay, how do you turn that asset or liability, fake asset or liability into a real asset that makes you money? House hacking is just so clear because I believe the example he uses is like a traditional house that people buy and rent in. So if you can basically merge those two, house hacking is served up to you on a silver platter. Kiyosaki made me think about this assets versus liabilities. And some people might not be cut out for being a residential house hacker. You know, they just pass that point in their life. But I think there's a lot of people who don't, who don't think about commercial house hacking, where if you own a business or if you are wanting to go buy commercial property, I know people who, for example, if you're going to have an office and you're an insurance agent or something, you know, why would you go rent your own place or buy your own big building? Like buy a commercial office space that has four or five places to rent, live in one or have your office in one went out the other three or four, you know, and so it works the same way with commercial and you can get really creative. Like I have a friend who similar to the San Francisco story that Craig talked about, he goes and leases commercial spaces from people. And then he, instead of buying it, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't want to get, make a big down payment. He just leases it and he has a right to sublease it. And so then he goes and divides up that commercial space, rents it out to a bunch of people, a bunch of little office spaces and makes money that way. And so you can be very creative, not only with like FHA loans and all that, you can get creative with seller financing, lease options. If you want to kind of take this to a whole nother level, it, it works not just for beginners living in their first house in their twenties, it works for uh, corporations trying to buy property. And for those of you in the audience who are not familiar with Robert Kiyosaki, 
you know, the normal script is that your home is an asset, but Robert Kiyosaki looks at it as a liability unless you're using it to make money for you. So just to kind of clear that up for those people who are not familiar with him. So Jennifer, tell me about this issue of real estate licenses. It seems like a lot of people who are into house hacking eventually decide to get a real estate license. Is this something you need to do or is it something that's helpful? No, I mean, I, you certainly don't have to have your real estate license or don't need to have your real estate license. It can be a very expensive hobby if you don't use your real estate license. You know, you've got, you know, monthly dues for a multiple listing service. You've got, you know, other dues for being at an office. So I, I don't think if, if you don't use it, it probably doesn't make sense. The other thing too that people need to be aware of from an investor standpoint is you have a fiduciary duty to sellers and buyers as well, right? So, you know, for some strategies, it might not be the best. You know, if you're doing lease options or seller financing or wholesaling, then it may not be beneficial to have a real estate license because you may be prohibited from doing some of those kind of things. So for me, you know, it was beneficial because of course I was able to use the commission for a lot of my properties. But if somebody was working full-time nine to five, and, you know, wanted to kind of dabble in real estate on the side and get their real estate license, it might be a little much. It might be, you know, kind of a lot to do all of those things. And uh, what I usually tell people is if they want to dabble, like if they want to become a realtor, I would say if you know that you can sell three homes a year, that's where after the dues, after all the expenses, you will be able to take some money home. But if you're just going to be doing it for just like your one house hack every year, the return is not there other than having the option to go at eight in the morning to go see a house if it's empty and then you because at that point, you are the one that has the access to it, right? So you don't have to be dependent on, on a realtor and their time, but you have to make sure that, that you can sell three or more a year. Yeah. So I think that also, Diego, I think that also kind of depends on the market that you're in because I'm not sure that the costs change all that much, but I know for like for Denver, for example, the average house will go between 300 and 400,000 and at a 2.8% commission rate, you're looking at 10 grand on each house you buy. And so that 10 grand is going to more than cover my dues and stuff for the year. And so for me, I tell people in the Denver area that if you do one deal a year, it is more than worth it to have your license. But if you don't, and then you also have that opportunity to do agent referrals and stuff like that as well, if you don't actually want to do the deal. So I really like it as almost like a fallback plan too, as to, hey, you can easily make some extra money this way. And also the advantages that you mentioned with going to see a house anytime you want and all that kind of stuff. So for those of us who don't want to become agents, I know all of you guys have platforms which help people understand house hacking and real estate to a level that's above and beyond the novice. So I'm going to give each of you guys a chance before we get on to other topics to talk about your platforms. Jennifer, talk to us a little bit about Agents Invest. Yeah. So Agents Invest, uh, it's an investment focused real estate brokerage based in Seattle. However, we primarily work with investors out of state. And so we get a lot of West Coast investors or East Coast investors from high cost of living areas that want to invest in markets that have cash flow and it makes sense. And so we help investors connect with different markets and different investment teams in those areas. We also do a lot on the education side. So I am leaving on Wednesday for our group investing trip to Nashville. So that's our, we've done a couple of trips this year. And then we also do buy and hold investing workshops. So we are only focused on buy and hold investments. Um, and our goal is to help investors achieve $10,000 a month in passive income. That's kind of our, our platform there. And then our investment community is addicted to ROI. So that's kind of where you can find you know, my personal blog, a little bit about what we're doing personally. And Diego, what is the House Hackers Club? Yeah, so it's basically a community for anybody who wants to house hack or who is house hacking, where we teach you every step into that process. And we can also introduce you to an investor friendly agent. The idea is that you come into a community where if you follow what we teach, you can become financially independent in the next five to 10 years. And Craig, your book is coming out on Wednesday. Can you tell us the running title again? Yeah, so the title of the book is called The House Hacking Strategy. It launches on October 3rd here on Bigger Pockets and October 17th everywhere else in the world. And Chad, you have a course on house hacking, is that right? I actually have just an article on house hacking. I've kind of focused more on that. I have a course, I have an educational website. That's essentially what Coach Carson is. And I have a podcast and a YouTube channel. So I guess the common theme for me is house hacking has been sort of one of the most common entry level strategies that I'm just I'm passionate about. And I like to get on that platform and I actually have Craig 
is going to be on on my podcast and my uh, wrote a guest post for me next week. So he'll be talking about house hacking, kind of the next level of house hacking. The common theme for me and my content is teaching people how to invest in real estate, but it's more catered to financial independence enthusiasts, people who don't necessarily want to own a thousand units and take over the world with syndications, but they want to have a lifestyle of doing what matters and real estate is just the vehicle that helps them do that. So Diego, I want to bring this all back around. So how does house hacking fit into financial independence? House hacking fits into financial independence in the way that you can reduce your living expenses and whatever you do as far as a job or other types of investments, the idea is that the passive income can cover all of your monthly expenses. Once you do that, you can reach a level of financial independence that then gives you the options to do what you really want to do. And similarly, Jennifer, you at some point, I think in one of your articles in Bigger Pockets, said that real estate is the perfect investment. Is that what you meant by it? Yeah, absolutely. I think anytime that you can get income, net worth, accumulation, and then also tax advantages from that income. I mean, I, I don't know any other investment that gives you, you know, so much flexibility and you know ability to accelerate wealth quickly. And Chad, when I think about real estate, I always think about it as an investment. But when you do it for a living, you have to also enjoy it. Did you get into real estate for the love of what it actually was? Or was it like, this is the way I'm going to free myself from a nine to five? I definitely enjoy it. And it's a passion. I sort of look at it like a game or a puzzle. I always used to play sports. I played football and basketball and still do on the side. And so I like the game of it. And I think that's one thing that we talked about financial independence and what, how real estate gets you there. In one sense, it is the perfect investment, like Jennifer talks about. It has, you can just list all of the benefits and you can just use it to build wealth and have it as a net worth kind of generator and an income generator. That's, that's one thing. But the other thing is sort of a mindset. And I, I have found that people who either embrace real estate investing and or kind of entrepreneurship business as their path to financial independence have a little bit less stress when it comes to that uncertainty and that taking that leap into financial independence because it's not just a number on a page. Like you can have $5 million in net worth and still have panic and fear about what's going to happen when you live off that income. Whereas I found house hacking is really a gateway to being the mindset of you can control a lot of the factors in your financial independence destiny. You can be an entrepreneur, you can be creative. And that, that mindset that you have it all inside your head to control your financial destiny is a big deal and gives you a lot of confidence. Craig, contrast Silicon Valley to being a real estate investor. Well, Silicon Valley is all about the grind, right? People love, you know, it's kind of, you know, you eat ramen noodles for five years just to build this thing to hopefully get some top tier investor to give you millions and millions of dollars to build your product. And even though your company is going to lose millions of dollars each month, hopefully it'll be purchased by Google, Snapchat, right? So it's hard to like, it's almost a lot of a lot of luck and a lot of work, way more work than buying a house, living in one room and renting out the other rooms. And I won't say you will get a higher return if you strike lucky in Silicon Valley. It's just much, much more unlikely than you would if you were just a house hack. So I want to run through the panel and I'm going to ask you a, a few questions just because I think they'll be fun. Let's start with Diego. Diego, what percentage of all of your assets are tied up in real estate right now? Probably everything except for the $8,000 that I have in a 401k. Chad, <laughs> what percentage of your assets are in real estate right now? I'm about 85% real estate, so I'm pretty heavy as well. And the rest of it is IRA type investments and index funds in the market. Jennifer, what percent? 90%. Craig, what percent are you real estate invested? About 90% as well. All right, Diego, how much time a month, or let's start with how much time a week do you spend on your real estate investments? I would say maybe one hour a week. And what percentage of your income does that account for? I would say... 30% of my income comes through passive. Chad, how much time a week do you spend on your real estate investments? Now, I know you do courses and your blog, mm -hmm. et cetera, but on actually managing real estate. Yeah, I spend a lot more time on my blog and all of that than I do. <laughs> and even on a nonprofit I'm with, but uh, my, my local real estate investing is just the bills and the normal stuff is probably an hour to two per week. And then that, that fluctuates though. Sometimes I have, we're selling a property or I'm meeting with my property manager. I might have a 10 hour week or a 20 hour week, but that's kind of the normal just maintenance of the portfolio. And that's, that's a big difference than what it used to be when I worked 60 to 80, 80 hours a week hustling and finding the deals and 
managing it myself. Jennifer, how much time do you spend a week managing your real estate investments? Yeah, about an hour or two. Craig, same question. Yep, hour or two, unless there's a vacancy or something that I need to fill and do showings and that kind of stuff. But on a typical normal time, it's about an hour or two a week. And I also want to ask the whole panel another question. Can you relate to us the worst case scenario you've had with real estate? Was there a time where something just went totally wrong? Like where you were, you know, pulling your hair out saying, God, why did I go into this? Yeah. One issue where I get a call at four or 5.30 in the morning by one of the tenants and it was that there was a leak in a water heater. And by the time I got to the house, there was like two to three inches in the first floor of water. It wasn't of like, why did I get into real estate kind of thing? But it was more from like, okay, this is my first big problem. I know what I need to do to fix it. But it's sort of like it did happen at 4 a.m. in the morning. But it is what it is. And in the 10 years or in the six years that I've been investing, that's been the only issue that I've had. Chad, ever a moment where you're like, I'm throwing it all away. This is it. I'm done. I'm selling all my properties. Uh, not all the properties, but there are certain properties that if a motivated, like an investor had sent me like one of those postcards that day and said, I'll buy your house for cash right now. I would have like, all right, you can take this property for 70 cents on the dollar. I'm not going to deal with this property anymore. But the, the common theme, I think, had been my mistake in buying either the wrong property or choosing the wrong tenant. Like, I mean, your tenants can either be like the most beautiful part of your business or they can be like the worst part of it, depending on how you fix up your property, how you screen them. And so I, I don't buy like a lot of you know, the real estate idea or you hear sometimes it's like your tenants are the hardest part of the business. Like it doesn't have to be like, they can be like the best part of it. They're your number one part of your team that help you make money and they, you're offering them a service that's valuable for them and you just got to do it right and buy, and buy it right. Jennifer, ever a moment that was just so bad that made you pause? You know, we've had some tenant things come up over the years. I mean, more recently, we just went through an eviction, which is the first eviction that we've ever had to do in 12 years, which is great. So I see that as a positive. And then, I mean, sure, you know, we, like we were in Thailand over the winter time, and we get this email that, you know, the sewer is backed up. And, you know, so we had to send a plumber out there to sneak it out. But again, we were in Thailand, so it's like, hey, can't do anything about this. Call someone to fix it. And, you know, it, it got fixed and no problem. I would say that, you know, early on, there were moments where my husband and I were thinking, is this worth it? When we were young, we were doing a lot of work on the properties ourselves. And so, you know, we were finding ourselves spending, you know, nights and weekends at properties, you know, eating pizza for dinner on uh, sawhorses and things like that. And literally, you know, we asked ourselves that, like, is this worth it? You know, we were both working a lot of hours and then kind of doing this thing on the side and, and we just pushed through it. And now, you know, where, where we kind of sit today, I mean, sometimes my husband and I look at each other and say, I am so glad that we put the time and effort in to buy these properties because, you know, now we have people that come to us and say, how can we do what you've done? Or, or how can we go travel the world and have all this freedom and, and, you know, kind of do what you guys do. So, so yeah, I think, uh, I think we've all had those moments, but you know, you just push through. I think you really have to focus on the why and the purpose behind it. And then again, just really understanding why you're doing what you're doing. Sometimes I don't think people compare the bad stories of real estate investing to the alternative. And I've heard so many people talk about their job horror stories or some boss telling them they had to come to work on a, on a weekend or a night or, and that to me is much worse than having a hot water heater every 10 years or about seven years that you can solve with property management and other problems. So I think keeping this in perspective, all of us have had these issues, but in the big picture, the amount of flexibility and freedom that all of us have had on the other side of that hot water heater is incredible. And Craig, we joked about it at the top of the show, but you've done some in-house room subletting, et cetera. You've done the Airbnb thing. Have you had any really bad experiences with someone renting out a room in your house? Yeah. So I've had a couple. I'll tell you the most recent one. So I was basically very lazy and getting very greedy. And I was redoing my basement in one of the houses to basically put on Airbnb later on. And I found two people that were willing to live in this construction zone for the month or two that was there. And I met with them and they seemed really nice, really cool. I did the background check and there was something that came up. There was a felony on the background check. I asked her about it and she said, oh, it was in my past. It was fine. So I went ahead with it anyway, basically did not take my own advice. And she moved in. And the first day, the contractor started going down the hallway, ripping up the carpet and they smelled this horrid, horrid smell. Turns out they were smoking meth in my basement. 
And so I had to go in and basically tell them it was a woman and a man both doing it. And I basically told them, hey, you guys need to get out as quickly as possible. And it was a month to month lease. So I figured, you know, what could go wrong? And this is obviously like the worst thing that could have gone wrong. But I got them out at the end of the week by basically saying, hey, I'll give you a security deposit. I'll give you all of the rent you paid me back and $500 to just get out. And they all did that. So we've talked about the pros and the cons, the risk and benefits of house hacking. I want to ask each of you to kind of round out this conversation. Coming back to the original question we asked, is house hacking the key to financial independence? I don't think it's the key. I think it, is, it represents one strategy that we all love and we found to be helpful for ourselves. I think it is the strategy for people who want to take a more entrepreneurial path to financial independence, who are willing to deal with some of the things we've talked about, some of the negatives, and who also want to have a little bit more of an accelerated path to getting there. You know, you can take the patient way and you can go index funds and you can wait on the market and that works. Like there's nothing wrong with that, but this is a way to be more entrepreneurial and control your destiny. Yeah, I, I agree with Chad. I don't think it's the key, but for us, it gave us the experience that we needed and the confidence in order to further invest. So I don't know, had we not started with house hacking that we would have gone on and continued to buy, you know, so many more properties after that. But it, it certainly helped from a net worth and an income standpoint. And then also, you know, giving us the ability to save up enough to then move on to other strategies where we weren't living in the properties. So for us, it was our key, but I don't know if it's the key for everyone. Diego, is it the key to financial independence? And I'll qualify this one based on one of the previous answers. Is it the key to accelerate your path to financial independence? Yes, I feel like it is a key. Again, there's a lot of different vehicles, but with this one is one of the only ones that you can eliminate one of your largest expenses, which is a housing expense. By eliminating that, you get to jumpstart on your path to financial independence. I agree so much. And Craig, you literally wrote the book on house hacking. What is your last word about achieving financial independence via house hacking? Yeah, I think these guys all said it exactly right in terms of there are probably thousands of people who have done achieve financial independence without house hacking. This is a really good accelerator. To use myself as an example, two and a half years ago, I had a net worth of negative $30,000 and $90,000 of student loan debt. And two and a half years later, through house hacking and some other side hustle means, I've been able to achieve financial independence and have a better net worth and pay off all those student loans. So again, it's just super, super powerful way to build wealth. So I'll go ahead and just give two closing statements. One is that clearly we are a biased group. There are six of us on this group phone call, and I think I own the least property, which is four condos that I rent out besides my own home. But I will also say that if you look at people who have net worth in the millions, I would imagine that a large percent of them own at least some real estate above and beyond what they live in. All right. So I'll give each of you a chance to answer the last question of what is up next for you and where can we find you? What's up next is just more of the same. I'm managing my properties. I'm traveling with my family and just teaching, trying to help people in whatever way I can with my story, with my information. And you can find all of that through coachcarson.com. Yeah. So what's up next for me? Uh, so I am heading to Nashville on Wednesday for a group investment trip. We have 35 investors that are meeting us in Nashville. We're going to have a lot of fun uh, this coming weekend. I'm also buying an eight unit there. It's closing in two weeks. So super excited about that. And then other than that, we have some big family travel plans this year. So we're heading to Orlando, Puerto Rico, and Costa Rica for our winter trip that we do every year. And uh, people can find me at addictedtoroi.com. All right, Diego, where can we find you and what is up next for you? They can find me at househackingclub.com and also on Instagram, uh, Real Diego Corzo. And what's up next for me? I have a house hacking course that I just launched. So I'm trying to like share it with a lot of people and anybody that wants to learn how they can use house hacking to jumpstart their path to financial independence. Happy to help anybody I can. Well, thank you so much for being on here. And Craig, I think I know what's up for next for you, but I'll let you announce it. And where can we find you? Yeah. So what's up next for me is obviously the house hacking strategy is releasing on October 3rd. You can get it at www.biggerpockets.com slash house hack. And if you want to find out more about me, you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at the Fi guy. This has been the What's Up Next podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, and my co-host, Paul Thompson, we wanted to thank Chad Carson, Jennifer Beatles, Craig Kirlop, and Diego Corzo. 
If you would like to get updates on what Doc and I are thinking up next, you can text the word NEXT to 345-345 so you can get notified of free giveaways, opportunities to engage with the What's Up Next podcast, and maybe even be a guest on the podcast. We're adding consistent content to our Facebook group, and you can get access by texting the word NEXT to the number 345-345. That's a wrap. To to be here, there is a picture of like a beach in the background, but it is. I'm in a hotel right now, and that's what we have. <laughs> that, that's going to set the mood for us. So that's very <laughs> common. I like it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. So this part, just so you guys know, this part is literally just for the first part of the episode where it's like, "Hey, this is Chad Carson. You're listening to the What's Up Next podcast, and we go through each person." Thank we'll you. give you a chance to do your two it was three bad instructions on my part let's be clear it was all paul's fault it's it wasn't my fault I, I did my job let's be clear Sorry. i messed up <laughs> so is this going to be the next book from bigger pockets called office hacking <laughs> craig maybe I, i've got an idea for you guys uh, I, 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 just know, came up, yeah, I just chad, came up with it right there <laughs> yeah I, I like it uh chad you might you might have to do an outline all right we'll work on it craig we'll, we'll call yeah. that one. great job so I'm already jealous of this winter trip that Jennifer's talking about. <laughs> yeah, we do it every winter. We go uh, to new countries, new places for my daughter's birthday. So she'll be five and we'll be in Costa Rica. Last year, uh, she turned five and we were in Vietnam. So how many stamps that? does she have on her passport? <laughs> 13. 13. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, we haven't been back to Europe in a while, so we're going to... Rough life, let me tell you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah sounds horrible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's bad. I don't recommend it. No, it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Diego, where are you from originally? Originally from Peru, mm. South America. Yeah. 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 Peru, Peru is wonderful as well. Love it. Yeah, mm-hmm. we have great food. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, I have important. never yeah. had Peruvian food. I mean, I... I'm I'm lacking. I'm missing out on life. I can tell. Ceviche? Never ceviche. Okay, I've had yeah. ceviche. I just had it. I didn't feel Peruvian. It just didn't feel authentic enough. <laughs> it needs to be the Peruvian ceviche. Yeah. <laughs> Other countries have a lot of ceviches, but the Peruvian one is the it's best. It's the real one. deal. The best, yes. Is the well, best. You can shoot me an email and I'll introduce you to the right person. Cool. Awesome. He has people. He's got people. Oh, bigger pockets <laughs> has people. <laughs> <laughs> Tech moves fast, so keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.